This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. The absence of pain is a little bit like peaceful silence. You don't fully appreciate it until somebody nearby starts blaring terrible music or running a leaf blower. Once the noise is ruining your zen, then you realize just how nice things were when it was quiet. When a new kind of pain starts, we often have the expectation that it will fade. I had always considered myself like a pretty healthy person. You know, being sick was something that you went to the doctor, they gave you some medication, and then you felt better. That's Amanda K. Oaks. A few years ago, she started having constant stabbing pains in her neck and head. It's very isolating to have something that is invisible, like chronic pain, and doesn't really have any way of proving it to other people, let alone your doctors. Trying to find the source of her pain turned into a long chase with terrifying options. Some of the the things I encountered as possible causes for my symptoms were, you know, multiple sclerosis, brain tumor. Amanda didn't have a tumor or a degenerative illness. She has chronic migraines. But the diagnosis wasn't really the end because I still had to figure out how to live with it. And I, I got my diagnosis, but that didn't mean that it went away or that it felt better. So it was a relief, but it also was sort of the start of part two. Her pain now had a name, but Amanda had to learn to live with the fact that it was here to stay. And sometimes there isn't even a diagnosis, no answer, no solution. That happened to Kieran Setia, who had a stabbing pain in his groin. Part of what was very frightening or, or disorienting for me was beginning to realize that when I went to doctors, they didn't really know what was happening. They were just trying things to see if they might work. In the end, doctors couldn't determine the source and this pain couldn't be treated. Kieran had to learn how to cope with it. At first, he felt isolated in his experience and frustrated. At the point of acknowledging that this wasn't going away and feeling very bitterly angry about it, I remember looking across a room at strangers walking by and thinking enviously and resentfully, you don't know how good you have it being pain-free. This sort of sense of anger about that. And then there was a kind of beat at which I thought, actually, I have no idea what any of these people are going through. They have no idea that I'm sitting here in pain. It's completely invisible. Pain is invisible. We can try to describe it. Stabbing, nagging, dull, achy. We can rate it on a number scale from 1 to 10 or point to a smiley or frowny face to define it. But it's not something we can ever fully communicate. Our pain is ours to feel, to bear, to live with. The individual nature of chronic pain, the mysterious way it often sneaks into our lives without a definitive source or origin, makes it hard to deal with and also hard to treat. 
Millions of people in the U.S. live with chronic pain, and their options for treatment or relief are limited. For physician Heather Vareich, it was a personal experience that changed his approach to treating pain. He was a med student in Pakistan, lifting weights in the gym when his back suddenly gave out. His body went limp. He was trapped under a stack of weights and in agony. He had a slipped disc, and he fully expected the pain to get better. But it didn't. Every night I would sleep with the hope that I'm going to wake up like I used to wake up before, you know, without any pain and just kind of focused on the day, or or that my pain would be lesser than it was in the past. And that just didn't happen. Pain almost derailed his whole life, his ambitions and his medical training. It really started to narrow my life down in a very real sense, in that I was now barely leaving my room. But in the end, Heder prevailed. He learned how to cope with his pain, how to coexist with it. He graduated from med school, became a physician, but his interest in the topic stayed with him. And it put him on a path to better understand the nature of chronic pain and what physicians can or should do to treat it. We need to recognize is that pain is not a disease. Pain is not like cancer. Pain is not like heart failure. Pain is not like dementia. It is a core function of our human body. On today's episode, a conversation with Heather Vareich, author of The Song of Our Scars The Untold Story of Pain. Before we got into Heder's approach to treating pain, I wanted to know how he moved beyond his own back pain. He told me he decided against surgery since it wasn't clear that it would resolve the issue. What helped you when you were dealing with this terrible pain that had basically created a prison for you, for your life? What helped you break out of that prison? I'll preface this by saying that probably the most important thing that ha- that helped me get out was just luck. Um, mm-hmm. I was lucky that I was a medical student. I was part of the system. And that allowed me access to advice and resources that I think many people don't get because they are they're outsiders and they're really seen as consumers rather than as real partners in the process. So the first thing that went right for me was that I saw a physical therapist and they told me to do all these exercises. And initially, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I could barely move my back. I could barely flex my back or my legs or my thighs, all the things that I needed to do. A lot of times, pain is a warning signal. Don't do this. Do not do this. It hurts. You know, don't touch this. Don't bend this way. And then in physical therapy, In a way, we have to override that the pain we're feeling is a warning signal. And that can be really hard. And it's kind of a, (laughs) it feels dangerous and it feels unsettling. It is very unsettling. I mean, as a young person, when I first was asked to just do these exercises on my own in my room, I was scared that I'm going to splice my spine in half. That's how much it hurt. That's how much it hurt just to bend, you know, bend my knees up to my chest or at least try to do so. Would I make it so bad that I wouldn't be able to walk? One of the emotions that is very, very closely tied to pain is fear. And that fear, most of the times it serves a purpose. If you are on the run 
from a sort of enraged bear and you fracture your leg, you start limping because your body tells you that if you put all your weight on that fractured leg, that leg is going to get worse. And so one of the chief functions of pain is to teach us lessons. And the tool it has to teach us is often or almost always is fear. And, and yet, in, the, in patients who have chronic pain, that fear is a false alarm. Heder says physical therapy helped regular exercise and learning how to tune out the pain. But it still remains a presence in his life, which is something I think a lot of us can relate to. I sometimes think of pain as a filter, you know, like you choose a filter on Instagram for your pictures. And sometimes I choose the filter to put on the pain, and sometimes the pain chooses the filter, or a lot of times, you know, so a lot of times the pain in a way becomes the filter that changes all of the experiences that I might have in a day. It's, it's almost like pain takes away your ability to focus on the world, and it focuses all your energy onto yourself, onto your own body. And, you know, instead of being able to Think about how other people are feeling or think about what is going on in the world. All you're focused on, all your thoughts, all your cognition and your consciousness is entirely inwards looking because you are just struggling with this, this question, this question of pain. And so, yes, it is, it is like this filter in which everything else just feels blurry and all you can see is just yourself suffering. When some part of our body hurts, we often start looking for a potential cause, go for scans, x-rays, or MRIs. Heather says they will often show something that looks like it could be the culprit, but for many people with chronic pain, the pain stays even if that issue is addressed which then leads to more tests, more interventions. Heather says in medical school, he was trained to view pain as a purely physical sensation. Sort of like your heart rate or sort of like your blood pressure. It was a fifth vital sign. And that, that pain was directly tied to bodily injury. And that relationship was very consistent. But yet, when I dove into the research and I actually spoke to people who understood pain at a level much higher than mine was, it, it became clear that pain is actually as much an emotion that we feel, as much a traumatic memory that remains with us you know, long after the injury has gone away, as much as it is a physical sensation. And I want to talk about that connection between pain and memory, because if we all think back over the course of our lives, I'm sure we can remember these things where we got hurt. And these are really vivid memories. Like one of my very first memories is me sticking my finger into the back of a door thinking, oh, what's this neat little space? And then somebody closing the door on my finger, right? <sighs> oh, I know. But I, it's like such a vivid memory. So it seems like there is a mechanism that really ties pain to memory to help us remember, and that's probably a, a good thing on some level. I mean, I haven't stuck my hand into the back of any doors <laughs> since that day. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, pain, the, one of the chief functions of pain is its function as a teacher. And the fact is that its lessons are only as useful as our ability to remember them. So our bodies are, in fact, very well-designed to actually over-remember 
painful episodes. And the fact is that because human beings are some of the longest living animals in the animal kingdom, we have to be able to remember those painful episodes for decades and decades. So the mechanisms in place for us to remember painful memories is perhaps the strongest out there. One of the leading uh, scientists that I spoke to who studied chronic pain, you know, essentially described chronic pain as an emotion remembered by the body, by a specific part of the body. And when, when, when scientists have done experiments in which they have blocked the body's ability to form new memories, not only do, this was work done in animals, but not only did those mice stop making new memories, but they also actually stopped developing chronic pain, suggesting that chronic pain is essentially a form of pain that is remembered and is remembered long after that initial injury has gone away. When pain is chronic and doesn't seem to have a, quote, you know, physical source. So we can't see anything on an x-ray. We cannot find anything that is causing this pain. Does it show up in any kind of imaging? Like, are there any areas of the brain that light up? Anything that we could see? That's a great question. Um, This has really been kind of the holy grail of pain science, is to find a reproducible objective sign of pain. One of the things about pain which is different from other sensations is that pain is not located or in just one part of the brain. So for example, like when you are seeing something, the visual center is very well demarcated in the brain. There's a part of the brain and that's all it does. It just, you know, sees stuff. Mm -hmm. But for pain, there's so many different parts of the brain that are involved. There are scientists who have used a test called functional MRI to essentially elicit what's been called the neurologic signature for pain. But the issue there is that it's not been very well replicated. It's not like you can put two people in a scanner and look at one person's signature on the MRI and the others and, and, and make a decision about who's in more pain than the others. And in a way, it seems like pain is so woven through our entire existence and our entire experience of the world around us that it's like you can't take those strands out of the carpet in a way or or even find out where they are or where they are going. It's, It's so much part of the fabric of who we are. We've spent so much time in medicine trying to simplify pain to take something that is as complex, just as complex as you've described it, and try to reduce it to something that can be easily packaged, easily measured, and easily treated. So for example, we have this one to 10 scale, you know, 10 mm-hmm. being the pain, worst pain in your life, or we have the happy, smiley face, sad, smiley face scale <laughs> yes. uh, to describe pain. And the hope was that through this approach, we will be able to recognize pain and treat it better. And yet what we've seen is, in fact, has been the opposite, where simplifying pain, not not just how we assess it, but also how we imagine it as individuals, how we think about it as society, has actually led us backwards in how we treat pain and has exposed more people to treatments that have not only been ineffective, but also been incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and I mean, we're seeing the the fallout of all of that right now. And 
if I think back to I don't even know was it 20 years ago it seemed like it seemed like at some point the profession of medicine declared a war on pain and pain became this big talking point and everybody had to ask about pain and something had to be done about pain where did that come from I think part of it was that we were seeing the pendulum swing in the right direction in the past in the 60s in the 70s in medicine we were letting people remain in in agony even when they were at the end of life even when they had some metastatic cancer or even if when they had terrible disease of the heart or lung and 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 they were they were acutely suffering and we did not respond to their cries for help and that changed almost with the efforts of one person alone and that was Cecily Saunders she was a social worker who trained as a nurse who trained as a med- physician who founded the palliative care and hospice movement and and she was the one who really changed the culture in medicine and really made us pay attention to people suffering especially at the end of life which was an incredibly important movement but what happened was that that movement was then hijacked by commercial interests who saw in this movement an immense opportunity to make a lot of money but they also realized that if they only focused on people at the end of life that the amount of revenue that they might be able to generate would be limited so they had to expand this same approach of treating pain at the end of life to essentially anyone living with any amount of pain whether that was someone coming in to get you know dental work done or whether that was someone coming in for a migraine or whether that was someone like myself who was you know, in chronic pain from back pain. Hedra says opioids work well for treating acute severe pain, like after a surgery. But they are highly addictive and not effective for treating chronic pain. Studies have found that people who use them for chronic pain were having worse symptoms one year into treatment. And that just speaks to just how opioids fundamentally change our bodies completely and how they alter our body's ability to to really be able to deal with pain they make us so dependent on opioids for relief that even just being in this world in this body hurts because our body's own system has been completely taken away from us so the body unlearns how to provide its own relief yes one of the reasons why opioids are so dangerous to the body is because our own bodies actually have a very complex mechanism of producing our own opioids these are called endogenous opioids and these serve all sorts of functions they are the reason why you don't develop pain just by sitting in one position all day i mean sometimes you might but on most days even if you're sitting in one position even if you're standing for a long time you may get a bit uncomfortable but that's not going to turn into pain and the reason that happens is because your bodies will exert will, will sort of produce these endogenous opioids that'll help take care of those sort of low level pains and help you just you know feel normal but the other thing that these endogenous opioids do is that their function is not just restricted to pain control they're they're actually the reason you might feel happy then you might feel good after you've had a great meal that you might feel love or that you may feel connected to your community. Hmm. 
All of these sensations, all of these feelings are because of the endogenous opioids that we have in our body. What happens when you take an exogenous opioid, which is essentially if you take opioids in a pill form or if in an IV form, that dose is so much higher than anything your body can ever produce on its own. That, that when the effect of that goes away and you want to have those same feelings again, not just pain relief, but also those, those feelings of joy or happiness and contentment, those small amounts that your body now makes, which were enough for you, which did the trick before you got the opioid, just don't do it anymore. That as soon as the effect runs off, we lose the ability even to feel normal, even to feel content, let alone be pain-free. And that is why, in the long term, this medication, which is so effective in the acute setting, which, is, which has provided so much relief to so many people around the world, becomes a poison chalice. That's Heather Wright. She is a physician who specializes in treating pain, and he's the author of The Song of Our Scars, The Untold Story of Pain. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking with physician Heather Verreich, author of The Song of Our Scars. He says ongoing stress plays a major role in how we experience chronic pain. And what we've seen is that the nature of stress has really changed in modern times. You know, we were exposed to stress as ancient human beings, but that stress was almost always in the acute setting. It was almost an immediate uh, stressful episode that was then followed by, you know, essentially the other end of the spectrum, which was that you were relaxed and you were not, not feeling threatened. But now, you know, in our modern time where a lot of our stress comes from work, a lot of our stress comes from things like childcare, a lot of our stress comes from the internet where we are exposed to, you know, sometimes a lot of negative stories that amplify all these sort of ancient systems. But instead of getting that cycle of acute stress followed by relaxation, a lot of people are experiencing chronic stress, and we've seen that a lot during the pandemic. For some people, their chronic pain has gotten a whole lot worse, and one of the risk factors for that has been, has been stress as well. And part of what stress does is that it makes you much more vigilant about your body. You're, you're thinking about your body in a way that you may not have thought before because you're worried something wrong is going to happen, and suddenly you're paying attention to a body that you may not have attended to before, and then you're start, starting to notice things that may have slipped under the radar if you hadn't been paying that type of attention to it. Stress reduction techniques can be really helpful for people in managing their pain. And Heather says there's another approach that tries to tackle the connection between pain and fear. In the acute stage, pain is a warning signal that something is wrong and has to be addressed. But that's not true with chronic pain. This approach is called pain reprocessing therapy. Which was essentially teaching patients that the fear that they had from pain was in fact an irrational fear and that they tried to remove the fear that people had from their pain, allowing them to essentially escape that terror that, that pain was trying to tell them that, that every time they have pain, that their body is under threat, that they might make things worse. And what they found was that this form of therapy had a remarkable result in helping people 
escape pain. So of those who received pain reprocessing therapy uh, for a month, when they went back at one year uh, to see how these patients were doing, they found that 50, 52% of these patients were completely pain-free or had minimal pain at one year, compared to only about 16% of patients receiving usual care. So the results were remarkable. And, and what they also found was that not only were these patients who received pain reprocessing therapy, not only did they have lesser pain, but they also had improvements in disability, improvements in how angry they felt, how much sleep they were able to get, and how depressed they were. And the only thing that they did was no manipulation with the body, but really a manipulation of how the mind perceives and responds to pain. That's Heather Wright. She is a physician and the author of The Song of Our Scars. A lot of physicians are rethinking their approach to treating chronic pain, not always chasing a potential cause or solution, but rather focusing on symptom management. Alan Yu has this story of one patient and the doctor who made a major difference in his life. One night in 2004, a truck driver got into an argument with another driver. We're going to call him Michael to protect his privacy. The other man stabbed Michael in the stomach with a hunting knife. I felt a a warm sensation and I instinctively reached in the area where the pain was coming from and unbeknownst to me, my fingers had gone into the stab wound, which was a, a gaping hole. He was rushed to the closest hospital covered in blood. Then he had emergency surgery. I wake up in a recovery room and I look down and I'm looking at a whole railroad track of uh, staples below my navel going up all the way uh, just below my chest cavity. But Michael's troubles were really just starting. A few months after he recovered from the stab wound, he felt a mysterious pain in his lower back, his neck, his shoulders, knees, places where he definitely did not get stabbed. Descending a staircase, which I have a set of stairs in my home. Little tasks like that became extremely uh, difficult. Each step that I took, whether it was going upstairs or coming down the stairs, you would feel uh, when your toe hit the ground automatically pain would shoot up or shoot down into your lower back. You know, I actually began using a walker. Before the stabbing, Michael was in great shape. Six foot four, muscular, more than 200 pounds. When he was in high school, he used to be a quarterback on the football team. And he continued to play other sports, but now he couldn't. It was a blow to me. I mean, I used to dunk a basketball with the greatest of ease. And knowing that I can't probably get two centimeters off the ground anymore, it bothers me. He lost a lot of weight and got physically weaker. He put his plans to go back to college and get a master's degree on hold. He went to see his primary care doctor, a pain management doctor, other specialists, to find out what was wrong. Your doctor kicks in and he's saying, okay, well... Let's do an MRI. Let's do some x-rays. At the same time, because of the nature of the injury and the area where I was stabbed, maybe it's a kidney problem. Michael's orthopedic doctor recommended knee replacement surgery, which he did. 
I went through a period where, you know, if I elect to have surgery, is it going to make me whole again? The knee replacement did not solve his pain issues. Doctors recommended more surgeries, but Michael was reluctant, remembering how much time he spent in the hospital recovering from the stab wound. And some surgeons have also become reluctant to operate on patients like Michael, people who have pain with unclear causes, even if it looks like they could spot the source of the trouble. 100% of people who hit age 50 will have some abnormality in their spine on an MRI. That's neurosurgeon and spine specialist Vijay Yanamathala. So that doesn't mean 100% of people have back pain which means that then teasing out which of the MRI findings actually cause pain and which don't is is a challenge. And that's a little bit of an art than a science in medicine today. And that is one of our biggest challenges. You know, in my office, nine out of 10 people who walk into my office have abnormalities that I could potentially operate on as a surgeon. But I only operate on more like one out of every 20 people. At his practice at Hartford Healthcare in Connecticut, he chooses which patients to operate on after he consults with pain specialists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and more people from different specialties. I see patients who are sometimes five or six back surgeries later coming to see me, and they're worse off than they were before their first surgery. But this message, that surgery is not always the answer, has been slow to catch on. Vania Apkarian is a neuroscientist at Northwestern University. He does not see patients himself, but he has been studying pain for 20 years. I give lectures to residents and pain practitioners, and often they ask me, so are you implying that we're doing the wrong thing? And I say, yes, that's what I'm implying. But the science and the practice do not match today in our society. What I heard from quite a few experts and patients is that current technology and treatments cannot take their pain away. And this began to settle in for Michael, as he was trying to find relief from his chronic pain. He did not choose to get more surgery. I went to see a neurologist about the pain in my lower back, and he took a look at the disc, the MRI, and he took a look at it and he said, look, Even if you put some rods in there and do some things, it's not going to guarantee that the pain is going to go away. Instead, Michael found his way to Basant Pradhan, a psychiatrist at Cooper University Healthcare in New Jersey. Rather uniquely, Basant trained for years as a Hindu and Buddhist monk in India before he went to medical school, which is part of his approach to treating pain. So, for example, Buddha said, that pain is universal to the human condition, but the suffering of this is optional. So everybody can experience the pain, but some people will suffer from the pain more than the others. He says part of his role as a physician is to help people change their experience of pain. That is why, aside from medications and magnetic brain stimulation, he also explores cognitive behavioral therapy and meditation with his chronic pain patients. He talks about pain, like any other subjective experience, being made of thoughts, feelings, memories, senses, and perceptions. That leads him to a very personalized approach with his patients. So, for example, in the middle of a pain, somebody went through a divorce, right? 
that's very different compared to a person uh, who is being cared by the whole compassionate family with many years of pain. Michael has been in therapy with Basant for eight years. And he says that is what helped him not take away the pain, but make it less of a presence in his life. My back is damaged. Okay, I don't have to suffer from it. Or at least I can minimize the suffering. And that's what the whole mindfulness practices and techniques has done for me. Even though I can't run around a track now like I used to, I'm happy that the work that I've been doing with Dr. Cradon has allowed me to do power walks around the track, which is important. He gained back the weight he lost while he was suffering in pain. He was able to get his master's degree, and he is now a social worker. He says when people look at him now, they do not know how much pain he's in. They probably think I can go into a gym and throw weights up. Little do they know that I'm being held together with popsicle sticks and masking tape. That story was reported by Alan Yu. So far, we've heard about physical therapy, mindfulness, stress reduction, wellness, all kinds of ways people can try to mitigate their pain. And the neuroscientist Alan talked to for this story, Vanya Abkarian, was quick to point out that what works for one patient may not work for another. Every patient is a unique chronic pain patient. Because a chronic pain patient, first of all, has been living with the condition for at least months, usually many years, and how they have interacted with the condition and how they have coped and suffered with it is unique to them. And so those properties make it very complicated to find you know, a generalized single solution. We're talking about chronic pain. The opioid crisis has made people more aware of the dangers of these habit-forming drugs. But painkillers are still an important part of managing symptoms for many people who have chronic pain. Coming up, we'll find out what's on the horizon in terms of new medications for pain. A class of drugs that really, really digs down on the exact process of how pain happens. That's still to come on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about chronic pain. We've heard about a lot of non-pharmaceutical interventions so far, but painkillers are still an important part of symptom management for many people. The opioid epidemic continues to rage on, and the quest to find alternatives to these addictive drugs has been long and frustrating. Generally speaking, painkillers work by dampening nerve signals that communicate pain. Every novel idea to selectively inhibit the signals we don't want, which is you know chronic pain, severe pain after surgery, but not tamper with the signals we do want, which is, you know, for instance, I feel pain if I put my hand on the stove. That's good. That's my hand telling my brain that I need to move it because I'm in danger. That has proved to be very difficult. That's Damien Garde. He is a biotech industry reporter for Stat News. Over the past decade plus, a lot of really interesting biological ideas have manifested in potential new drugs that for you know, a multitude of reasons when tested in clinical trials prove either to be too weak, maybe too broadly effective so as to create dangers of their own. One example 
uh, was a class of medicines that looked very promising just about 10 years ago. And Pfizer, a company called Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Eli Lilly, some of the, the biggest companies in the drug industry had invented medicines that theoretically would target this, uh, this target that they discovered. And as it turned out, as they tested them in large clinical trials of patients with pain related to osteoarthritis, there was a really alarming signal where these patients were suffering serious joint damage. And so there were a lot of theories. Is this drug somehow damaging people's joints, which didn't really make any sense biologically? And what emerged, and you know, there's no way to prove this really, but a, an explanation that emerged that I think a lot of people found very convincing was rather it was limiting the pain that these patients would have had in their joints that was telling them, don't lift that heavy box. Don't do this strenuous activity. And so in a way, the pain drug was working too well in that it was dampening signals that were necessary and leading to injuries. And those drugs have since fallen by the wayside. None of them ever won FDA approval. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the process of testing any new contender that is potentially coming to market? Because there are so many different kinds of pain out there. So who is included in these studies? How does the process work? Right. So in general, it can be incredibly complicated because pain itself is not a disease, really. Definitely not by the FDA standard. It is a state. So if you have an issue, if you've just had a surgery or if you have osteoarthritis, as I mentioned, you can be in a state of pain and we want to treat that. But in order to run a clinical trial, you have to kind of choose an indication is sort of the jargon, but choose a disease that you're actually endeavoring to treat. So that complicates it. And furthermore, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry is, is populated by publicly traded companies that have to return profits to shareholders. So there is an incentive to go after the largest market possible in order to you know, maximize the potential profit return. And so I think that's led to some clinical trials that in retrospect were not that well designed. So for instance, the osteoarthritis study I mentioned, that might be too big a group of people, too complicated, too many types of pain to deal with. And so what we've seen in parallel to the years of failure in recent years to develop new medicines is some companies learning that maybe the smartest way to do it is to separate that massive patient group of people who deal with pain into smaller ones where you can maybe better understand exactly what's going on and maybe have a better chance at running a study that leads to a positive result. There is buzz over a new painkiller that's in development, one that's being studied with the method Damien mentioned by focusing on smaller patient groups with similar pain. There's a pharmaceutical company named Vertex, and they have a proposed alternative to opioids called VX548. What is happening with that, and how does it work? Yeah, so VX548 follows in the lineage of a class of drugs that really, really digs down on the exact process of how pain happens, which is basically these channels that open and close um, basically when, when you're in pain to send that signal. And the idea is that this drug will go into your body and kind of sit next to that channel. I mean, I'm, if anyone from Vertex is listening to this, I'm sure they're banging their heads against the wall. I'm oversimplifying it. Um, but basically force it closed when it opens and therefore limiting your pain. And the ingenuity, not only biologically there, but in terms of clinical trial design, is that Vertex ran some studies enrolling patients who had just undergone either abdominoplasty or, or bunionectomy, foot surgery, which is to say they were in the acute pain stage. 
and treated them with this investigational medicine or placebo or the opioid hydrocodone. And the trial succeeded. And what does success look like in the study they completed? What, what kinds of results did they get? So the study's primary endpoint was patients reported pain scores within 48 hours of the surgeries that they had endured. And so Vertex was able to declare a success because the drug outperformed placebo in terms of reducing those pain and was numerically superior to hydrocodone, which means that, you know, it was in the ballpark. It performed better, but maybe not statistically significant. But that was seen as, as a success, one, because, you know, you want it to be placebo. That's the, the hurdle that every drug faces. But if it could be, in the future, interchangeable with hydrocodone, which is a, you know, habit-forming opioid, then this could conceivably be swapped for that conceivably dangerous medicine um, in future cases of, of patients undergoing this kind of surgery. So even the success in these relatively small studies was pretty big news in the field of pain management. So the next step for this, this drug in particular is for them to replicate those results in larger studies, which they've already embarked upon. Is anybody looking in different corners? You know, we typically think about the signals and dampening the signals. Is anybody trying something completely different that is still in pill form that could be marketed? There have been a few really interesting efforts that were not so much dampening or boosting, but kind of modulating how your brain works in the theory that you could kind of unlearn whatever's happening with your nerves that leads to chronic pain. Unfortunately, at least to my knowledge, each of those has failed in clinical trials. I think one of the things that has been most heartening, like I said, this Vertex drug is part of a fairly novel class of medicines targeting how pain signals is that there is a genetic impetus for it. There are genetic mutations that exist in the world that lead to, and were first discovered by, looking at the genomes of firewalkers, street performers around the world who seem to just be able to walk across hot coals casually. It turns out in many cases they had a genetic mutation that made them insensitive to pain. Now that can be devastating if you break a leg and don't know, you could be in serious danger. Um, but likewise, there is an opposite genetic mutation that leads to gain in function, which is, results in a disease called man-on-fire syndrome, which true to its name, is you know it affects people and they feel like they're in excruciating pain all the time. I mean, a, a lot of the history of medicine is in looking at genetic mutations that occur in nature and trying to learn how to replicate or prevent their effects with a medicine. So the fact that this new class of drugs has that lineage, that scientific lineage, I think that's given a lot of people hope that it can actually pan out because we've seen, we've seen what nature has done with it over millions of years of evolution and now scientists get a crack at learning from that. So there might even be a gene therapy in the future. Well, and that's something that uh, I know an academic lab had looked into is, is, yeah, using the technology of gene therapy or even genome editing, like, like CRISPR, for example, mm -hmm. to go after that. I would be very interested um, to know how one designs a gene therapy that is just effective enough that you don't inadvertently give your patient either the firewalker version of this or the man on fire version of this. But um, <laughs> I imagine that very smart people, very ethical people are looking at that. And so it won't be up to me. That's reporter Damien Garday. He covers the biotech industry for Stat News. Mm -hmm. 
no matter what kind of relief people find for their pain, whether there's a treatment that works, a medication that makes things better, or it's all about healthy lifestyle stuff, there's definitely an element of coming to terms with this issue. The pain being a constant presence, like an annoying roommate you have to share your life with. So I wanted to ask physician Heather Verreich about making amends with pain or declaring a truce. And I'm wondering about the role of acceptance, that this pain is here, I don't have to react to it, I don't have to do anything about it, but I have to live with it. And it's sort of like the stage of cohabitation, like we we both <laughs> inhabit the, the same body and we have to make arrangements with this pain in a way. I think one of the things that, one of the mistakes that I think people make is that people equate acceptance with resignation. And I, I don't think that's the case because so, so many times people in chronic pain have been told that, well, you just need to accept this, the fact that you're in pain but done so in a way that is derogatory or that diminishes their experience. But what acceptance really means is to, is to essentially prioritize your ability to live your life and do the things you love doing more than being pain-free at all times. So initially when I got hurt, I stopped doing anything. I wouldn't go to any get-togethers. I wouldn't go you know, eat out with my friends. I stopped going to the gym. Because I knew that, well, I, those activities might involve me being uncomfortable. There was uncertainty around how much pain I'd have to endure just to be able to do those things. But what we found is that when you teach people that doing those things, living your life, is much more important or should be more important than trying to control the pain or minimize the pain at all times, that not only is your quality of life getting better, but the amount of pain you're having is getting better too. Because again, the fuel for pain is attention. The more you tend to it, the more it grows, the more it controls your life, and the more intense it becomes. And so what acceptance allows us to do is to deprive it of this fuel and to focus on the rest of our life, to focus on the rest of our worlds rather than just be inwards looking at all times. And really, it's one of the things that is still novel in medicine, but this is how we've lived with pain for our entire uh, histories as human beings. For so much of time, we had, we had, we had no opioids, we had no painkillers, and so we had to find ways to live despite the pain and live well despite the pain, and that is something that has served us for a very, very long time, and I think that that's what the most cutting-edge research is showing. In fact, much of this form of therapy, the pain reprocessing therapy, is based on the principles of acceptance. And, and to me, that is really what we need to recognize is that pain is not a disease. Pain is not like cancer. Pain is not like heart failure. Pain is not like dementia. It is a core function of our human body. It is a physiologic process. It is not a pathologic process. And that even though medicine oversold this dream of mass anesthesia to people, that is, the price that we've paid for that is just immense and is to me, is an unachievable goal. And not only is it unachievable, I don't think that that is something we should aspire to. Certainly, I don't think that suffering in of itself has some intrinsic value. I don't believe in that either. But I do think that we as a society have to come to terms with the fact that pain is going to be part of our lives 
but that we can't let it control us to the extent we have allowed it to, and that we need to find better ways to be able to live with it. Heather Verreich is a physician and the author of The Song of Our Scars, The Untold Story of Pain. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, Jad Slayman, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer, and this week we had engineering help from Diana Martinez. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wildcard podcast, the game where cards control the conversation. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR.